You know, I kind of feel like a bookend this morning. I preached the first sermon in Pastor Stephen's sabbatical, and now I'm preaching the last sermon. So to me, I just kind of feel like a bookend. Um, I am very thankful to have heard what Tim shared with the Gideons, especially having been a businessman that spent a lot of time in hotels through the years. And, you know, it always seemed at times that I'd forget my Bible, but I knew in most hotels there was always a Gideon's Bible. And I was thankful for that. So thank you for sharing. And I'll yield time any time to the Gideons. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful... It's a wonderful ministry. So when I preached last, Psalm 73, the first week of Pastor Stephen's sabbatical, I mentioned how the Psalms are real, how they're gritty, how they're filled with raw emotions, with fear, anxiety, worry, anger, and all of that. And I said, at the same time, though, The Psalms are filled with hope and trust and and assurance and confidence in the Almighty God who is greater than our emotions, fears, anxieties, worries, and anger. Now that theme of those raw emotions has been a consistent theme in most of the Psalms we've heard preached thus far. So today I thought I would maybe change things up a bit and I would preach a psalm that has an entirely different feel about it. A psalm that is simply described as a psalm of David. And that psalm is Psalm 24. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up right now. And if not, it will be on the screen behind me. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I'm going to pause right there and point out something. Psalm 24 really begins with a very bold statement. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know, I actually prefer uh, the NIV translation that I originally learned that verse from in the 1980s where it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything belongs to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the one who says he is and always was, who calls himself I am. Everything belongs to I am. And if you notice, everyone belongs to to the Lord, to Yahweh, to I am. Me, you, everything around us. Psalm 24 tells us belongs to the Lord, belongs to God. Bold, man, very bold claim for sure. 
but why does it all belong to God? That might be a question people are asking, but why does it belong all to God? Well, verse 2 answers that question. For he, God, for the Lord God, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And some of us might be looking at that and just saying, hey, that, I understand that. Because the Bible itself, the Word of God itself, begins with a very bold statement that fits perfectly in with that verse 2. And that very bold statement that the Word of God begins with is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You know, people, I talk to them and I say, well, you know, on faith, I said, you just got to believe four words to begin with, in the beginning God. You start believing those four words, man, the Spirit will start moving in you. Bold statement. Now, I call these statements bold because they are really in-your-face statements. Statements that confront our worldview, that go toe-to-toe with what we say that we do or do not believe. And since I'm opening up this morning with bold statements, let me just offer a bold statement of my own. This is not in the Word of God, but it is my own bold statement this morning. Here we go. Whether or not you believe the bold statements of Scripture, to be true or not to be true, they are still true. Did everybody catch my bold bold statement? Whether or not we believe the bold statements of Scripture to be true or not to be true, they are still true. You see, a person's belief or disbelief in the bold statements of the Word of God do not or does not validate or invalidate those truths. I mean, the Bible says, uh, let God be true and every man a liar. What this book tells us is true. And it is a truth we need to hear. We heard Tim express that, a number of reasons we need to hear. It is the revelation of God. It is the revelation of what God wants us to know about him. He wants us to know about ourselves, what he wants us to know about one another, and most importantly, what he wants us to to know, to have a relationship that we might be saved with him and through him. Now, because these truths are so bold, only those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them can and will accept accept that opening of Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, I chose Psalm 24 this morning for a couple of selfish reasons, too. Uh, One reason is that it's really near and dear to my heart. Back in 2015, when I needed to buy a building for our business, Integrity Laser, my accountant, kind of at the last minute, the building was in closing and everything, and my accountant in the bank that was financing, they said, you know what you need to do? You need to start up another business. 
So you could buy the building inside of that business, and your first business can rent from that second business, and, and all of this stuff, and I was already under the stress of buying a building. Now I had to set up another you know, business to buy that building. So I needed a name quickly. So what did I choose? Anybody want to guess? Psalm 24.1, LLC. Man, he nailed that one. You know, when I had started Integrity Laser, I said it was Integrity Laser because I wanted in the name Integrity to always remind me to have integrity in business. And now I chose Psalm 24.1 LLC, which I must tell you messes up state computers and bank computers, having a colon in the name. But that's something besides the point. But I chose that name because I always wanted to remember that I am a manager. The Bible might use the word steward. Not of what is my own, but what is God's. And I wanted to be reminded that the building and the fullness of the business therein belong to God. And secondly, I chose Psalm 24 to preach today because I was so blessed once. Marilyn and I were blessed to be able to be sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane at one point, looking across the Kidron Valley and looking up at the old city of Jerusalem with its wall and with its gates, with its doors in that wall. And I have this picture in my mind of looking up at that majestic city. So when I read Psalm 24, the psalm plays out of my mind. Now you might be asking, what do you mean by plays out? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there is a count, an account of David and, his, and an entourage bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's the account where it comes in, the Ark comes in with such hoopla and worship that David's own wife that day scolds him because he's out there dancing with reckless abandon before the ark of God as it is coming into the gates of Jerusalem. Well, there's a common belief amongst biblical scholars that Psalm 24 was written by David as a kind of a script that day as a script to be read, to kind of be acted out as the ark was coming into Jerusalem. So Psalm 24 is often called the Psalm of Ascension. So in my mind, having seen Jerusalem, having sitting in Gethsemane, looking across the Kidron, seeing up the hill and seeing Jerusalem, and then knowing the story in 2 Samuel, I kind of put the two together and I can kind of envision this in my mind as what is happening. You know, verse 3, right? So we begin, we're going to begin with verse 3. But imagine this, those escorting the ark that are bringing the ark towards Jerusalem up that hill, they cry out in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the gatekeepers up above, they respond to that question, starting in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, 
he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. And then in response to that from below, the script continues. Those below cry out to the gatekeepers above, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is the king of glory in verse 8? The keepers, the gatekeepers ask. And as the ark advances closer to that gate, nearly upon it, the answer comes from below. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the gatekeepers above call down to the, the approaching ark and, and to the entourage with it. And, and the gatekeepers repeat their original question, who is the king of glory? Then the answer is given, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, Selah. So there's the script kind of as David had laid it out. The gates are then open. The Ark of the Covenant is carried through and placed in the tent of worship David has prepared for it. Now looking at Psalm 24 from the perspective of David's script to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem is all well and good. That's what it was probably originally intended for. But you know what? There's a thing about psalms. Many of the psalms, in fact, other passages of prophecy and such, often have different levels of meaning. We can look at Psalm 24 today as on the level of a script being used by David to bring the ark in. We can also look at Psalm 24 as a messianic psalm on a level that is instead not talking about the ark, but pointing to Jesus in one way or another when he comes. So now let's consider Psalm 24 on a messianic level. On the messianic level, the bold statements of verses 1 and 2 are actually followed by a sobering question in verse 3. Well, if all of this belongs to God, right? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And then that is followed in verse 4 by the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You know, when I think about that day when all of this happened, right, when the ark was coming in, and I think, you know, in reality, here's what I picture happening, right? The gatekeepers call down to those transporting the ark. He who is clean has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And I see this guy turning white that's down below with the ark. I see him turning white. I see him with a, a face of shock turning to his buddy next to him and saying hey bro what did they just say did i hear them correctly i can only go up there if i have clean hands if i have innocent hands 
if, if I've never given myself, my heart to anything false or any ungodly affections, I can only go up there, I can only ascend that hill if I've never lived. <laughs> I'm supposed to go up there? Dude, I'm in trouble if I go up there. I mean, remember those guys that God smote because of their sin? Count me out. I'm not going any further. I'm not qualified to ascend. And then I imagine similar cries emerging from the group of people down below. Yeah, me too. I can't risk going up there. I got a wife and kids. What are they going to do without me if God smotes me? Smites me. Smotes me. Either way, it works. I am a sinner too. And actually, those are very appropriate responses in a case like that. When we think about ascending the hill of the Lord and entering into the presence of God, those are appropriate responses. I mean, imagine the different places in Scripture where people see the face of God, like in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah writes this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And another called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And he, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. That is a proper sentiment entering into the presence of the most holy God. And maybe it is passages like that why the writer of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Honestly, I mean, come on, honestly. If left to our own devices, if left to our own thoughts, our own words, our own deeds, honestly, who among us is innocent and pure enough to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the presence of the living God? Not one of us. Maybe that's why the Selah is there after that, to make us just think and pause at that question, who can ascend? Now the Bible tells us that all have sinned, that there is not one of us who is good or does good, and there is not one of us who is worthy to enter into the presence of God, except if we're going there to be judged and condemned. So that kind of raises a question this morning. So if not a single person is able to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy presence of God, then how does a generation of people, that generation of people found in verses 5 and 6 play into the equation? If none of us can do that, then how does a group of people do it? The answer to that question begins with a man, actually. One man. Only one man. There is one man who has always been innocent, who has always been pure of heart, who has never lifted up his soul into vain things 
or to ungodly affections, who has never spoken deceitfully. And that one man is Jesus Christ. And not only is that one man fully man, from Scripture we know he is also fully God, the perfect representative between God and man. For just as Yahweh declares himself, I am, to Moses in Exodus 3.14, nine times in John's gospel, Jesus declares himself to be, I am, to be Yahweh. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am. And when he's arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, the guards say they're there to seek after Jesus. And then Jesus responds basically, I am he. You're seeking after Jesus, Yahweh. Here I am. And they fall back from that declaration, those guards, to the ground. Who can ascend is our question this morning. As God and man, Jesus can, and he did ascend. There are many places in Scripture that talk about the importance of Jesus' ascension into heaven. But our time is short this morning, so we really can't dig into all those different passages. So I'm going to just summarize a little bit here from Hebrews. The letter of he to the Hebrews, or the book of Hebrews, does a wonderful job explaining how Israel's sacrificial system, which involved a, a sinful priest offering animal sacrifices to atone for man's sin, Hebrews tells us that that whole sacrificial system was insufficient and unable to grant man lasting forgiveness and redemption. And then Hebrews then tells us about Jesus' sacrifice and how it was better. How the perfect high priest, Jesus, offered the perfect unblemished lamb himself once and for all time he made that sacrifice. And that was better because it was able to accomplish God's plan for man's eternal redemption. I mean, just listen to Hebrews 8.12 to get a feel for what I'm talking about. It says, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Reading Hebrews, if you were to go home and you were to read it, you'd see all kinds of imagery of Jesus ascending, not just up to Jerusalem, not into the tent of worship, 
or later on into the Holy of Holies when the, the temple of, you know, the temple of the Jews would sit there on the holy mountain. No, no. Reading Hebrews, we see imagery of Jesus ascending into the holy of holies, the true holy of holies of heaven. And in doing so, after the crucifixion, in doing so, it says because by his single offering, he perfected for all times those who are being sanctified so that their sins would be remembered no more, Jesus ascended, went in, sat down, and took his rightful throne. So that generation in verses 5 and 6 today, that basically is the same generation that Jesus offered himself in sacrifice for, that they might have eternal redemption in sanctification where their sins are remembered no more. So I kind of like reading Psalm 24 at times with that whole dialogue in the book of Hebrews in mind. Because I envision something totally different altogether than David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. If we read Psalm 24 from a truly messianic perspective, then that question is a question of heaven. The question of God and the holy holies. The question of all that is good in heaven. Saying, as they see one approaching, who is it that ascends the hill of the Lord? In other words, who's coming to heaven? Who is that coming up? And then we hear Jesus' response as he approaches. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then Jesus boldly says, so lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. But heaven's a bit confused here. Looking down, they see a man approaching. And no man is clean enough to enter into heaven. So the question goes out. Who is this king of glory? Jesus replies, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift. Up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in, is the command that Jesus makes. And heaven, still a bit confused, demands to know who is commanding entrance into heaven. Who is this King of glory? is asked again. And Jesus speaks his final word. The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. 
I am. It's kind of like a mic drop at that point. The exchange is finished. That is the final word. Jesus, the King of glory, has ascended to the throne room of God. Heaven's gates at that moment are burst off of their hinges. That's what this lifting up the head sort of thing is a picture of. It's like the gates coming completely off their hinges. And the veil separating man from God is torn asunder. And Jesus, the perfect God-man, enters the holy of holies in heaven, the very place of God, and he takes his seat upon his eternal throne, evermore to sit as the perfect representative in heaven between God and man, the one and the only mediator between God and man. And First Timothy 2 tells us that. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what. Reading Psalm 24 from more of a messianic perspective is a real scene and what a drama. And it beats any script David has written. Because it gives us the true meaning and the true significance of the one who truly could ascend and make a way for others to ascend. So as I wrap up our message this morning, there's one more point I want to make. So after the book of Hebrews explains all of this about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross being sufficient, once and for all sufficient, for the forgiveness of our sins, and for securing our eternal redemption, at the end of chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, makes an invitation of sorts to us. and He invites us. So, starting at 19, I'm going to read 19 through 23, but I'm going to abbreviate it a little. It goes like this, this invitation, therefore... Because of all this that has happened with Jesus ascending to heaven, with Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, with being Jesus being the sufficiency of redemption, his sacrifice, all that, therefore, since we, who's we? You and I, who have put our faith in Christ. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, Jesus has made a way for us to enter the holy places since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. And since we have a great priest, here's the invitation. Verse 22 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, let us draw near. Let us draw near to that God, that thrice holy God because of the blood of Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We can be assured of faith 
we are allowed to draw near to that thrice holy, holy, holy God because Jesus has ascended, because Jesus stands in the presence of that God, and because in Christ we are accepted into that presence. We can draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. My brothers and sisters, our salvation is not in our hands. It is in the hands of the one who has ascended, the one who is faithful, the one who has promised. Because of what Jesus did, not because of our own good works, not because of our own good thoughts, but because of what Jesus did, we are invited to ascend and enter into the very presence of the God of heaven without the fear of condemnation, but in instead with expectation of eternal blessings. And all just because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Oh, wow. So how do we respond to Psalm 24 this morning? Well, if we're a believer, if we have turned from our sins, and if we have repented and placed our faith in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation, then let us just do what we just heard. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And remember that he who promised it to us is faithful. Every time we think we've somehow lost our place in heaven, our place before God, let us remember it's not us. It is Christ's work that guarantees that place, and he is faithful to hold it for us. Let us continue to live a life of repentance and faith, drawing closer each day to that one who is faithful and true. And if perhaps you're hearing my voice in this, this room or online, and if you know, if you know in your heart that you're still clinging to the false hope that you're a good person and deserve a place in heaven because of your goodness. If you're still clinging to that false hope, and if you're clinging to that hope that, hey, I'm a good person, I'm better than the guy next door, the girl over there. If you have heard this message today and if the Spirit is speaking to your heart, then you know what? Let's start believing. You can start believing right now the bold truths of God's word and of his gospel and admit to this almighty God that yes, you are a sinner in need of a savior. And then do as the Bible tells you to do, as the Bible commands you. Turn from your sins. Look upon the one who died on the cross and put your faith in him, knowing that all of your sins were there with Christ. And that God, when you put your faith in Christ, will accredit all of his good works to your account. Believe that today. Put your hope and your faith in Christ. And if perhaps you want to do that and you're not sure how and you, you need a bit of help maybe, find me after service. Find one of the, of the other leaders of our church here. And I'm sure they'll be happy to lead you and walk you through that process. Let's pray.
Father God Almighty, Creator, Ruler, Sustainer. The one who, who is, who always was, and will always be. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning for the redemption that he has secured for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for his faithfulness. And we thank you for the word of God, your word that you have preserved for us through the centuries that we might have it today and know what Christ has done for us. And we pray that we would not take it lightly, but that we would put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ, in his ascension, in his sacrifice, and in his good works. And we ask this in the name of Christ this day. Amen.